Let me pray for us and we'll get started. Lord, thank you for this time to come together. Thank you for everyone that's here with a zeal to learn your word and to put it into practice. And I pray that your spirit would work in us, Father, we, uh, that we might uh, take the things that we learn, that we might become the men and women that you're shaping us to be, and that we might present ourselves to the world as really great reflections of you and your love. I do pray for all the cares and concerns that we have. We trust you with our successes, and we trust you with our challenges. In Christ's name, amen. Well, you probably know, text your questions to that number during class, because we like to answer as many questions as we can. I think it's also at the bottom of your handout, in case you forget, so just text questions there if you'd like. So I think I mentioned to you, but we're talking about John chapter 14, the Gospel of John, New Testament, 14, 15, 16, 17. And where that's happening is the Last Supper has occurred. This is Thursday night. And so in chapter 13 is where Jesus washes the disciples' feet and Judas leaves to go betray Jesus. And then chapter 14 is what we covered last time. And chapter 14 appears to happen there in the room. After Judas has left, he begins to teach his disciples. They're very concerned because Peter has just said at the end of chapter 13, Peter has just said, you know, I don't know about these bozos, but I would give my life for you. And Jesus said, really, that's humorous, Peter, because before dawn, you're going to deny you even know me three times. Well, that shook up the disciples. They're like, oh, my goodness, Peter's kind of the leader. And if his faith's going to fail, what does that mean for us? And so they were very concerned. And so if you remember chapter 14, Jesus has two things he wants to say to them. It begins this way. It says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God or trust in God, trust also in me. So one of the things he wants to do is comfort them. He said, basically, that your faith is the antidote to fear. That you, when your heart is troubled, you're filled with anxiety and fear and worry, which they were, anticipation of a future they thought was going to be bad, but they didn't know exactly what was going to happen. And he said, trust in God, trust in me. Faith is the antidote to fear. Second thing, he moves on in, and I told you six times in chapter 14 and 15, he says, if you love me, then obey my commands. We talked about the Great Commission. Later, after the resurrection, he's going to say, go make disciples of all the nations and teach them to obey my commands. He says, if you love me, you will obey me. And so the second thing he's talking about is that we cannot really love Jesus without obeying Jesus. Those things go together talked about Jesus obeying the Father and us obeying him. He was the model for us. So those are the two things he wanted to talk to him about, that your fear is the antidote to faith and that your love is expressed by your obedience to me. Then at the end of chapter 14, they leave that room. As a matter of fact, the very last uh, phrase is, come now, let us leave. In other words, let's leave this place. So they begin to leave uh, the place which is probably somewhere, this is a view of the Temple Mount, which of course the Gold Dome is a mosque now, but that's where the temple likely was. I'm almost certainly. The temple was right there. And this is from the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. So you have the Temple Mount, Mount of Olives, and in between is the Kidron Valley. And it's pretty steep to walk down and up. But as they leave somewhere in Jerusalem, he's moving toward the Garden of Gethsemane. And so as we get into chapter 15, 16, and 17, they're making this journey. Well, I'd like to talk to you in this lesson about chapter 15. What does he go on to talk about? There are three topics. He's going to talk about, and he's very specific, it breaks up very nicely. He clearly wants to talk about these three things. He's going to talk to them about the relationship of believers with Jesus. And I want you to remember, when Jesus is talking in chapter 15, this is going to actually come into play a little bit, he's talking to followers. He's not talking to everybody in the world. He's talking to his disciples and by transference to all who will become disciples. But he's not necessarily talking to everybody in the world. And you can kind of see the way he breaks it up. The relationship of believers with Jesus, the relationship of believers with one another, and then finally, the relationship of believers to the world. 
And when the New Testament talks about the world, typically, I, can, I, I don't know that I can think of an exception at the moment, but there may be one, but typically he's talking about people who are not following God. In fact, people that are in rebellion against God. So you can see the three categories, relation of believers to Jesus, believers to each other, and then believers to a world of people in rebellion to God. One of the basic mistakes we make sometimes when we're interpreting or understanding the scripture is not asking the question, to whom is this speaking? Because some of the things Jesus says here, he's not talking to everybody in the world. He's not just a moral philosopher telling the whole world, you guys should all love each other. That's not the way this is structured at all. In fact, I think you're going to see he's going to have a dichotomy between love and hate. He's going to draw some really sharp lines. So let's dive into those three sections, and they break up just very nicely through the Scripture. So we're going to uh, jump into the beginning. Let me give you just a few verses. John 15, 1 through 3, he begins to talk about, he, so he comes out of obedience, and he moves into this relational aspect between believers and Jesus, and he uses what's called this vine image or the vine motif, because you're going to see it a lot in the scriptures. He says, I am the true vine or the genuine vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. And the ones that do bear fruit, he prunes, so it'll be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. So first, let me cover two things. We'll come back to this. But we haven't spoken about this because we're just talking about the, the tail end of John. But in the Gospel of John, there are seven I am statements. This is the seventh one. I am the true vine. And I went ahead and uh, pulled a little listing of the others for you. This seems to be very intentional on John's part. John tells you unapologetically at the end of the Gospel, he said, I have picked these things out of Jesus' life so that you might believe and in believing you might have life. He said, I could not possibly tell you everything Jesus did. I don't imagine there are enough books in the world, he says, to hold everything Jesus did. So he's basically taking the things from Jesus' life that will help us trust him. And he takes these seven statements. I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the door to the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection and the life, if you remember Lazarus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. We talked about that in our last lesson. And then I am the true vine. This vine imagery is very common in Israel. Let me flip forward to Psalm 80. This is all over the Old Testament. But basically, Israel is thought of as a vine, as a grapevine. It said, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it or transplanted it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took root and filled the land. So you see God choosing his people, and he uses the vine image a lot in the Old Testament and obviously here to talk about as a metaphor for his people and what he's doing with his people. So you get the idea of a vine. In fact, during the Maccabean period, and that's at the end of the Old Testament, before the birth of Jesus. So this is in between the Testaments. If you're Catholic, you may remember in your Bibles you had the first and second book of Maccabees. Well, there are four of them, but two of them in a Catholic Bible. But they are basically historical accounts of an event that happened about 167 B.C., 167 years before Christ, well after the Old Testament. But in the Maccabean period, the Jews threw off the Greek rulers and for almost 100 years ruled themselves and they minted coins and on their coins there was a vine and that was the symbol of Israel. And so it's taken on a positive and a negative sense, but this idea of a vine is really frequently used as a symbol for Israel and then by transference, New Testament, Jesus transfers that to whomever are believers, whoever are followers. So you see this idea of the vine motif and the imagery. Let's go back and look at a couple of things in this passage. I want to drill down on a couple of really interesting things here. First off, I want to focus in on this idea of a true vine. If you've got your Bibles, mark them up. Uh, you know, mark, I'm an underliner. I'm a highlighter. I like to write things in the margin. I've written things in the margin of my Bible. I go back and I go, wow, that's really good. 
I wonder if I said that or somebody else said that. <laughs> then I decided, oh, I probably said it. I'll take credit for it. I'm sure I've taken credit for a lot of things that other people said that were very good. But the true vine, he doesn't say, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He said, I'm the genuine vine. I think that's really significant because then and certainly now, there are other things that promise nourishment to us. And Jesus, I think, is careful in his words to distinguish between who he is and all the other things in the world that promise nourishment. For example, in Jesus' day, they, you know, basically to have a, a happy life and to be healthy, wealthy, and wise, you would worship the emperor and be a good servant. And the idea was that would make a happy life. Or you might be an Epicurean, or you might be a Stoic, which are different ideologies of life, or you might be another religion like Zoroastrianism, or you might be a Buddhist, or you might be any number of other things that promised the answer to the fundamental questions of life, how to flourish as a human being, or how to, using our analogy, how to be nourished and grow and lead a vibrant life. Jesus is not unaware that there were other people, other systems that were promising a nourishing, growing life. And he takes care to say, I am the genuine vine. I am the one who can actually nourish you. So this idea of the genuine vine acknowledges the fact that there are other promises of nourishment. We find that in our culture as well. We talk a lot about it, in fact. We talk about the idea that Satan is the father of lies, and Satan's favorite technique is to lie to us and tell us that something other than God can fulfill our basic needs. Something other than God can save us. Something other than God can ultimately give us joy. So this idea of nourishment, Jesus begins by saying, I am the genuine vine. But just as interesting as that to me is this, and my father is the gardener. That word, by the way, gardener, in Greek is George. So if your name is George, it literally means farmer. They just translate it gardener here because it's a vineyard. And so he said, I am the genuine vine, and my father is the gardener. Just as there's an implication in Jesus being the genuine source of nourishment, I think it's a very interesting image of God as being the father, or as being the gardener. Because a gardener, well... Don't come to my house. This doesn't apply at my house. But generally, a good gardener does not neglect the garden. A gardener, by nature, tends the garden. You know, you're pulling up weeds, you're fertilizing, you're trimming, you're, you know, whatever it may be, you're caring for it. You really get this image of God caring for those who love him, those who follow him. I think that's a great image. Jesus saying, I'm the true source of nourishment, and my Father is truly a gardener. It implies that God's not distant. God's not sitting back going, boy, I hope you make it, and in fact, I'm keeping a list, you know, of what you goofed up with. That image of God really isn't consistent with the New Testament at all. It says he's intimately concerned about your growth. He's given Jesus as the source of nourishment and life, and he says, and I'm actively participating and his goal is for us to grow. So the image of God as the gardener implies to me an active, involved, interested God in our growth. There's a word play in here I want to show you because it's kind of interesting. It, it, he's, John does this all the time. John's talking in agricultural terms about spiritual things. John's always talking on this level and it makes sense, but he's always got a more subtle message. These three words are agricultural words. He says his father cuts off every branch that bears no fruit, and the ones that do, he trims, cuts down, literally. So he cuts off or he cuts down, trims, so that it'll be even more fruitful. And he said, and by the way, you are already clean. In other words, you have already been pruned because of the word I've spoken to you. So he has this little word play there. He said, my father cuts off branches, he trims branches, and you have already been completely pristine. There's no dead weight on you 
because this word of mine refines you. So there's an interesting little wordplay there in the agricultural sense, and then obviously spiritual meaning. He says, without bearing fruit, my father cuts off those branches. The ones that do, he trims those branches. And at the end of that trimming process, you are purified. In fact, that word is, instead of clean, is also translated pure like you're ritually pure, you're clean before God. The Jews use this word quite a bit in inscriptions, by the way, of the idea of being ritually pure or ritually clean. That's this word. So he's got this play going on agricultural terms, but he said that's true spiritually as well. No fruit, cut off. Bearing fruit, trimmed. And the result of that is you're pure, you're clean before God. He moves then in, straight from there, and he hits a second big theme that John likes to talk about. This is Jesus speaking, but John records these, these kind of words of Jesus a lot. Look at this, and as we go, I'm just going to underline the first thing I really want you to, to watch. He said, remain in me, Jesus said, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a person remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he's like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it'll be given you. This is my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. This word remain is often translated and probably better translated, abide. And so the couple of questions I want to ask of this text, and the first is, what does it mean to abide in the vine or to abide in Jesus? Now, Colfax talked about that here this weekend. For those of you that go here, you probably heard him preach, and he talked about this idea of abiding. And he used a great image, and so I'm going to steal it because he's not here. And so he's talked about the idea of abiding. This is a great image of when you're on a trip and you take your suitcases and you go to the hotel room. I mean, I know some of you unpack there. I never unpack. If I unpack, that just means I'm going to lose something and leave it in the hotel room. So you, know, you open it up and you kind of live out of your suitcase. Then you come home. You don't live out of your suitcase at home. You take things out, you put them in the drawers, you hang them up in the closet, you put some things in the hamper, and you put the suitcase up because you are settling in. And that's a great word picture for the idea of abiding. Abiding means someplace, it implies continuity, it implies you're going to stay there for a while. That's why it's translated in the NIV, remain. It's not a bad translation, but you're going to hear this word abide a lot. Jesus uses it a lot, and John likes to use it as this ongoing, settled-in, comfortable relationship, this ongoing relationship with Jesus. So Jesus here, he, I mean, he's obviously, you see how many times he talks about this. He said, I'm the source of nourishment. My father's the gardener, but here's the thing. You can't bear any fruit unless you remain in me. Another way I would think about that is you can't have this kind of nourished life, this connected to the vine life, by visiting. It can't be checked by every now and then. You know, God, I'll check in with you every now and then. I'll pray once every two or three weeks. I'll read my Bible every now and then. I might think about you whenever I'm in trouble or... I hit a really errant golf shot. You know, he's saying abiding is this continuity. It's unpacking and settling in. It also has an implication of relating. This whole thing is very relational. In other words, it's the ongoing abiding relationship with Jesus. That's connectedness, literally. He uses the literal idea of a vine and a branch, physically connected, with water running through it and nutrients going through it. That's a metaphor, an agricultural metaphor, for this spiritual relational connectedness. That implies all kinds of things. The Bible doesn't say to you, you need to pray this many times a day. 
you need to read your Bible this often. You need to go to classes or you need to worship or you need to gather with other believers. There's no set amount of time and there doesn't need to be because of this. Jesus says, look, we're past that kind of external constraints. Here's what I want you to understand. You need to do everything you can to stay connected relationally with me. That's why we do all the things that we do. It's why we serve. It's why we study. It's part of why we worship. It's why we give. All of these things are effectively abiding in Christ. So it's kind of the idea of unpacking. It's the idea of relating. And then one other idea, and this may be a little subtle, but I want you to think about it. It's conduct. It's behavior but not in a legalistic way. And when I say legalistic, I mean not in a list of 613 commandments like the Old Testament. It's not so much, not that there, don't misunderstand me, there are things that are right and there are things that are wrong, but it's not really so much about this legalistic behavior, it's more about how I conduct my life. Because see, here's the thing, you can be religious and not be even slightly connected to Jesus and the vine. And here's how you do it, because been there, done that. Still tempted at times. It's like, here's the vine and here's Jesus, and I get some nourishment and I go, all right, I know how I'm supposed to act, so I'll see you later. And I'm off about my business in the world, but I'm trying to behave in a way that makes me right. That's not this image, is it? I'm disconnected. No matter how good I act over here, I'm just in the wrong place. The idea of connectedness is not just relational, it's not just abiding with Jesus, but it's also being where he is. Being connected to the vine image doesn't say, come on vine, oh, just load up, I need to take you to work, you can help me out. It's more of a, I'm the branch, I can't get very far away from Jesus. It's that subtle difference of being about Jesus' business in the world rather than Jesus helping me with my business in the world. Now, I know that's a little bit subtle, but think about that a little bit. There's tons packed into this idea of the vine and the branches and abiding. Question? Yes, we have several. Okay. Um, can you talk about um, what it looks like to bear fruit or to be pruned? Yes. That's a great question because that's actually our next point. Okay. So you, you want to do another one? Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. If Jesus is to be our intercessor and to judge us, then why does the Father cut us off? Yeah, that's a great. We're going to talk about that too, but let's just go ahead and answer that at the moment. There are really three big ideas in this passage. The first is abiding, and we just talked about that. The second idea of the question is what is fruit? What does it mean? I mean, if it's a good thing. You bear fruit, you get pruned, you bear more fruit. You don't bear fruit, you get cut off. Bad, good, right? The point there, those are the three key ideas in there. What is fruit and what does it mean to be cast off, cast away? That's a clear judgment motif. In other words, it's clearly talking about judgment. Now, let me say this. That's not the main point of this. This isn't just about judgment. It's actually about abiding and it's actually about bearing fruit, but as a consequence, it talks about what happens if you do not bear fruit. So it is a judgment motif, and we'll talk about that in just a minute, too. I want to show you other places in the Bible where you'll see this exact judgment motif. A couple of historical questions. Um, how dangerous was it to be hated by the Pharisees? Dangerous was it to be... Hated by the Pharisees? Hated by the Pharisees. It was, it was bad. It was like... You know, uh, today, having everybody that you know on Facebook criticizing you on Facebook. I mean, it's like you felt bad. It's the power system of the world, and it's like they're all against you. The Pharisees were, first of all, they were really righteous in behavior. Jesus compliments their zeal to do the letter of the law but there's no heart. They're not, they're, like I say, they're disconnected from the branch and they're off trying to be really good looking, you know, from the vine, they're trying to be really good looking branches and he says, you guys are withering up because there's no heart in this. That was his real issue. So they were the moral and the religious 
power of the day. They also had civic power because the Romans really didn't care about the court system. And so you could be hauled up on religious charges, like healing on the Sabbath. Romans, they don't care. They don't even know what the Sabbath is. But you're going to go in front of the Pharisees and the judges, and they're going to, they're going to punish you for that. They're going to beat you. Remember, think Paul. Remember Paul, you know, getting the 40 lashes minus one. So bad news both morally and physically being an enemy of the Pharisees. Not something most people were able to do. Most people disliked the Pharisees because they were holier than thou, kind of oppressive, but most people were afraid of the Pharisees. So good question. Very costly, actually. Um, the King James uses the word abide in verses 4 through 8, and then the NIV uses... Let's just go back to the King James. That's my attitude. <laughs> uses remain. That's a joke. That's a joke. <laughs> Is there a reason why that, that was changed? Oh, it's just English translations of the same word. I mean, that word, uh, being, you'll see it translated abide. I like abide a little bit just because, I mean, I just like it because of the image it portrays in our minds. Abiding gives you that sense of continuity, but so does remain. NIV is just trying to give you that sense of what that word means. They're both good translations. Uh, you may even see some other things, but those are the two probably the best I've seen. In Jesus' metaphor of the vine and the gardener, there are distinct roles for Jesus and for God, the vine and the gardener being distinctly different. What do you believe Jesus believed about his own relationship with God at this time? Yeah, good question. You're going to see in chapter 14, go back and read whoever asked that, go back and read 14. You'll see a little bit of a snippet again in 15 in just a few minutes. Jesus talks very much about being obedient to God. He said, the Father loves me and I love the Father and I have done exactly what the Father commanded. Then he turns around and he said, if you love me, do what I command. In other words, Jesus models what it looks like to uh, humble ourselves, to submit ourselves. I think last time I quoted to you Philippians 2 that talked about Jesus humbled himself. He, he was with God, equality with God, but he humbled himself took on the form of a human being, and he humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. And so Jesus sees his relationship with the Father as one of the Father loves me and I love him. You'll see later he's going to say the Father abides in me and I abide in him, and I have done what he has commanded. So you see Jesus taking on, modeling for us that role of just submission to God. So that's how Jesus clearly sees it. Now, he also sees himself as being the son of God because he's saying, my father. And so he, he understands himself as divine. I know there are people that are going to argue that a little bit, but it's really unmistakable in the Gospels. He, he knows that he is God. He also knows that he is going to obey out of love for the father. And that's exactly what he commands us. If you love me, then do what I've commanded you. He says, this is not either or. These things naturally go together. Good question. We do one more. Uh-huh. Okay, verse 7, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. Can you yeah. clarify that? We don't always get what we wish. Oh, absolutely. Let's talk about that. In fact, I'm glad you asked. I wasn't going to talk about that at all. I was really, I was going to skip that, but it occurs to me, yeah, that probably is interesting. Okay, so this is a great opportunity to talk about how to interpret the Bible. And this isn't even true of the Bible, this is true of anything, any document. But basically, if you just grab that and pull it out of, this, out of uh, context, what does it say? He said, ask whatever you want and God will give it to you. Actually, there's a whole theology for that. It's called prosperity gospel. But basically, if you grab that and pull it out, unfortunately, all of these things, and that's why I like to show you the sweep of Scripture, you need to understand it in the sweep. If you take anything you say out of context, you're going to go, wait a minute, wait a minute. That, you need to understand that in the scope of what I was talking about. So you'll get in James, for example, it'll say, we don't have because we don't ask. And when you do ask, you don't get. Why? because you choose to spend it on your lusts. What is he saying is you ask self-centeredly. Watch what he says. If you remain in me, and if my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, it'll be given to you. And here's the dilemma, and I'm not trying to cop out on this, I'm just saying, he says, if you are abiding in me and my words in you, and you are being transformed, there's another way of saying it, transformed into the image of Christ, 
I no longer have selfish desires. Remember what I told you? It's not, oh, thanks, take the vine, come on to work with me. I got some people you need to smite, you know, and I've got some things you need to do for me. That isn't even slightly consistent with abiding in me. So Jesus means what he says. He said, when you align yourself with me, wait till you see the powerful things God will do. But the scripture also talks about the idea of don't expect to ask to fulfill my selfish desires and that God will do it. Here's the great example of that. A little bit later in the Garden of Gethsemane, which we won't get to in this little study, what's Jesus going to say? He's going to say, I would like some other way to redeem these people than the cross, but not my will but thine be done. In other words, I tell you what's on my heart, but I will do what you want because I love you. That's the perfect image of this, and that's true. But when we pull out of context and say, wow, uh, I guess I can have whatever I want from God, prepare to be disappointed because it's really not a promise that he's making. Great question. Well, let's talk about the second piece, abiding. We've spent some time on that. I really want you to think about that. Let's talk about fruit. What is fruit? There are two major ideas that people use for this, and Jesus would have been puzzled by either one of these. One is fruit is converts. Right? It's baptisms, it's people following Christ, it's souls that are saved. That's a good thing. Don't misunderstand me. But if you define fruit in that way, then you really narrow it down. And Jesus certainly was trying to bring people into the kingdom. So that's part of it. The other idea is, no, if you're not as evangelistically motivated or you don't see it quite that strictly, you'd say it's good deeds. This is probably more common, by the way. People think fruit is doing good deeds. You know, give to the poor, be nice, uh, you know, to people who need to be nice to. In other words, doing good deeds. Well, that's also true. Jesus did a lot of that. He healed a lot of people that were sick. He literally gave everything he had away. So that's also true. But neither one of those are really sufficient. I'm going to give you a great little quote by a guy named Gerald Borkert. He's a theologian, but this is a great way of understanding it the way Jesus and John understood this idea of bearing fruit. Bearing fruit is communicating the authentic message and the authentic life to the inauthentic and hostile world. So it's communicating the authentic message and the authentic life to an inauthentic and hostile world. So what is that saying? It encompasses both of these. It doesn't actually draw a duality between saving souls, doing good deeds. It's just like, no, it just erase that line in between them. If you are connected to the vine, then remember I told you it's also conduct. It's being about God's business in God's way of doing business. So is a Christian somebody that goes and testifies about the good news of Jesus? Yes. Is a Christian someone that behaves more and more and more and more over time like Jesus? Yes. Well, which one should I be doing? Yes. In fact, connected to the vine, both of those things happen. I'd like you to think about it holistically like that, that you are not charged to go out and just, you know, stand on the street corner and tell the gospel. That's good. Or go out and just act really good so everybody can see Jesus in you. That's really good. Those are not different. It's just living out the nourishment of the vine. You must communicate the good news of what Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's done. And we must go testify to what it looks like to be attached to the vine. So yeah, you're going to see evangelism, you're going to see good deeds. My problem is not that either of those is wrong, it's the duality of it. We tend, once you think of them as two different things, you're going to fall on one side or the other. Jesus really never thought about those as two different things. So abiding, fruit is communicating the message and the life to a hostile world. And then third, what does it mean to be cast off and burned in the fire? Well, it's clearly a judgment motif, and I want to show you a couple of things. First of all, I want to show you what a vineyard looks like. This is uh, from Israel. Some of you recognize this. This is a place called Yadashmona, but there are tons of places like this everywhere. And in Yadashmona, I want you to, there's some vines really close up. They're just kind of right over here. But what I want to show you is this hillside. I want you to notice how this has been terraced. 
That's not natural. You see how all those things, that hillside's been dug out so that the water won't run off? You know, they dug it out here and dug it out here. Well, they not only dig it out, but they also line it with rocks so that every one of those terraces has rocks there to keep the erosion from, uh, from washing it down. And so there's huge amount of work involved in doing this. You would build a watchtower. That is a watchtower to watch over it, to make sure the animals weren't getting in and eating all of your grapes or that people weren't coming in and stealing it. You'd build a watchtower. Incredible amount of work. There's more to this story, but just trust me that there's an incredible amount of work that goes into this. And so vineyard, when, when he's using this image of the vineyard and the idea of pruning and bearing fruit, they understand that. How much care it involves, oh man, they understand the sweat, the backbreaking work to take care of a vineyard and make a vineyard work. They understand that as well. They also understand the disappointment of not having grapes. So look at this, this is another uh, vine image. This is Isaiah chapter five, it's a pretty little passage. This is God talking to Israel who has been completely faithless. Isaiah, think Isaiah around 700 BC, 700 years before Christ. And he says, Israel, you are on the wrong course. And I'm going to give you a word picture to explain it. And he uses almost the same word picture that Jesus does. He said, I'll sing for the one I love, a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up. He cleared it of stones and he planted it with choice vines. So the gardener, the father is so concerned and he's going to all this effort. And so he built a watchtower in it, and he cut out a wine press also, literally out of the stone, chiseled it out of stone. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but when he came, it yielded only bad, wild grapes. He planted choice vines, he put all that effort, and here's all this bad fruit. He says, now you dwellers in Jerusalem, here he's making the point. He said, do you guys see who you are? You dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard? When I looked for good grapes, why did I find wild grapes? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I'll take away its hedge and it'll be destroyed. I'll break down its wall and it'll be trampled. I'll make it a wasteland. I won't prune it anymore. That's interesting, isn't it? He's not going to prune it anymore. Not pruning us is a symbol of God leaving us. When God is working on us, remember what Jesus said? My father prunes the ones that are bearing fruit. So when you feel like you're being pruned, God's cutting something off of us. We're putting away sin in our life and we're wrestling with that. That's because God is very interested in us. Listen to what he's saying here. I won't prune you anymore. I won't care for you anymore. And so he said, I'll command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are the garden of his delight, but he looked for justice and he saw bloodshed. He looked for righteousness and he found cries of distress. Again, using that agricultural metaphor for what he really wants. He wants justice, he wants rightness. And he didn't, he found injustice, he found unrighteousness in his people and he said, you're bad grapes, this is bad fruit. So I think this is hopefully a helpful image to give us an idea of what is God talking about. One other passage, Ezekiel, fast forward, about a hundred years, about 600 years before Christ. Hey, look at this. The word of the Lord came to me and he said, Son of man, how is the wood of a vine better than that of a branch of any of the trees in the forest? In fact, what he's going to say is a dead branch on an olive vine or a grapevine is worth less than a dead branch on a tree. Look what he said. Is wood ever taken from that to make anything useful? Do they make pegs from it to hang things on? Well, maybe from a dead olive branch, but not from a vine branch. And after it's thrown in the fire as fuel and the fire burns it up and chars it. And he says, basically, that's how I will treat Israel because you bear no fruit. You, you know, I'm looking for justice, I find injustice. I'm looking for, for the qualities of mercy and I find nothing but oppression. And so you, you begin to see God using this imagery. I wanted you to see this vine imagery that Jesus is talking about is very common. So you get the idea of abiding in Jesus. You get this really powerful idea of what is fruit, that it is living out the authentic message and the authentic life that says, look, you can tell I'm connected to the vine. You can tell God is pruning me because I continue to look more and more like Jesus. 
cutting off is this idea from the Old Testament. It's God turning his face away and we wither. And he said, you're not even worth making whittling and making anything useful with. All you do with those is burn them. And so you get this inevitability idea of judgment. If we're not connected to the vine, it's not just that God's mad and says, I'm mad at you and I could do something with you, but I'm just going to throw you away. His point is, sin makes us completely unsuitable. He said, look, even if I wanted to, I can't make anything out of a dead branch from a grapevine. So you kind of see that image of judgment, the inevitability of judgment. And then finally in that section, he says, and he wraps it up this way, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now, remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you abide in my love. Again, behavior and love put together. They're not two different things. Just as I have obeyed my Father's commands. You see that image again, that example? And I remain in his love. Now, here's the really interesting thing. He said, now, I've told you all this. Oh, I know why you've told me all this. You're warning me. He said, oh, no, I'm not warning you. He said, I've told you all this so that my joy can be in you and your joy might be complete. You see, Jesus is not saying, better do this or else. He's saying, this is the way to a joyful life. Does that make sense? Otherwise, that passage is weird. At the end, I've expected him to say, I have told you this so you don't goof up. That's not what he said. I've told you this so I can be completely joyful in you because I want you to be nourished and flourish and look like me. And you will find joy in this as well. What a beautiful passage. Beautiful passage. So God sees judgment and fruit and pruning all as very loving things to do that lead us to joy. He sees obedience to him, not as duty, but as something that brings us joy. Make sense? Powerful, powerful passage there. And he wants to tell his disciples this. And then by transference, he wants to tell all of us this. He said, this is what it's like for you to relate to me. This is the essence of the Christian life. But then he says, well, how about, so here's the so what. We must remain in Jesus to have life and growth. You have to abide in Jesus to have life. There is life no other place. Remember Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. This is just reemphasizing. He said, it makes sense. How much fruit do you think you'll bear when you're broken off from the vine? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's not making a statement like, I'm going to make that so. It's just the way it is. And so he uses a brilliant, this vine motif is a brilliant way to talk about that. Second, he says, how should you relate to each other? Here's going to be the sign of being a follower. He said, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends because everything I learned from my father, I've told you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Again, you see the same idea. This is my command, love each other. It's always tied to abiding in Christ. Loving Christ, obeying Christ, and then you see this harmonious uh, transfer from the Father. So, the idea of loving one another, but I want to focus on this. Look at this. This is really emphatic. You did not choose me, I chose you. And you're going to see this all over the scriptures too. I'll just give you a couple. Deuteronomy 7. This is Moses talking to the Israelites. They're thinking they're kind of hot stuff, like, yeah, you see what we did to Pharaoh? Oh yeah, God likes us. And he said this, the Lord, he said, I hate to burst your bubble, but the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous or because you, in fact, you were the fewest of people. It was because the Lord loved you. He chose to love you and he kept the oath he swore and he brought you out of the power of Pharaoh. Fast forward to the New Testament. God demonstrates his love for us in this. Because we were such nice people, Christ died for us. No. That's not even slightly a biblical concept. The point of God's love is he chose to love us when we were least lovable. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's choosing. And you need to really get the idea that 
it's not up to us. We did nothing to have this happen for us. Christ died for us. We love because he first loved us. In other words, all through the scriptures, God is always the initiator to redeem us. We, you don't see examples of one day, I thought to myself, gosh, Terry, this is no way to live. I think I'm really ticking God off. So you know what I think I'm going to do? I think I'm just going to clean up my act, and he's just going to be so proud of me one of these days. You find that in the New Testament, you're going to have to show me. Actually, you're going to have to write it in, because it's nowhere in the New Testament. What's in the New Testament is this idea of Christ chose us. That is hugely powerful. I'm going to go right to the so what. I want you to, if you get nothing else out of this, you should walk out of here with a smile on your face because Jesus says this, you have been picked, you have been chosen, and you have been commissioned for a very specific purpose, to bear fruit that lasts. That's verse 16. He said, basically, you have been chosen not because you merited it, not because of a score on a test. God chose you. You are special. And he commissioned you. He gave you a mission, a very specific purpose, and it was to go bear fruit. Now, remember, what did we say fruit was? Go take the authentic message and the authentic life to an inauthentic and hostile world. He said, I picked you to go do this. That's what it means to be a Christian, is... God chose us to go to the world and do this. So the way we uh, deal with each other is this, love one another. You have been picked. You've been given a mission. You're going to bear fruit. You just stay connected to this vine and watch what God will do with you. Now, here's what I want you to do to all the other believers. You have to love one another. In fact, there's just no other way to live. You have to love one another. He said, you're my friends if you do what I command. We know his plans, and his plans involve us deciding to love one another. And that's the thing I really want to uh, emphasize. I want to emphasize you being chosen, but I want to emphasize this. Obedience to God is when we choose to love another. It is not when we feel love for one another, because that's a trap. Love in the New Testament is not predominantly a feeling. It is very much a decision, a choice, an act of choosing, an act of will. In fact, one of the best things you can do in your marriage is to subtly or overtly realize, I choose you. You know what that says? That says, I love you in a profoundly godlike, biblical way of loving. Now, you may also have feelings of passion. I'm not discounting that. I'm just telling you that God's love for us didn't depend on how he was feeling about us because we were toast. You know, he chose to love us. And that's the same thing he asks of us. To love one another means we have to choose to love each other. Now, you should, be, you should be exhaling a big sigh like, oh, thank the Lord because I really can't stand this guy. You know, don't point. But you see, my point is you don't always have good feelings about other believers. And that's not the issue. That's not the point. God's love is really made manifest when we choose to love people that aren't always lovable. Remember what Jesus said? If you love the people that love you, so what? Pagans do that. He said, if you just give to people that give to you, so what? He said, sinners do that. It's that choosing that's really powerful. Make sense? So how do we relate to one another? We relate to one another largely by recognizing who we are. We've have been chosen and commissioned to go take this authentic message and authentic life of the connectedness to the vine kind of life out to the world. And one of the great demonstrations, in fact, Jesus says, if you don't get anything else right, get this right. One of the great demonstrations of that is how you choose to care for each other. Remember Acts 2 and Acts 4? How'd that church grow in the beginning? It grew because people on the outside said, look how those people care for each other. I want to be a part of that. They weren't doing pony rides in the temple courtyard. It wasn't bouncy day. No, okay, I'm going a little too far. It's okay to have bouncies for the kids. But you get my point. What really drew people to the church? Like, do you see how those people care for each other? Powerful witness. That's what Jesus is saying about how we relate to each other. 
And then finally, how do we relate to the world? Okay, here's where the love thing really breaks down. The world, remember, are people who are in rebellion against God. This is not believers. These are not followers of Christ. He said, if the world hates you, just remember it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you. But as it is, you do not belong to the world. Why? I have chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you? No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. You get this idea. Think about what he's saying is they will persecute you and they are going to hate you. They said, if they obeyed my teaching, in other words, if they loved me, if they were followers of me, then they would obey yours as well. But they'll treat you this way because of my name, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they wouldn't be guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them what no one else did, they wouldn't be guilty of sin, but now they've seen these signs, and they have hated both me and my father. But this was predicted, that they hated me without reason. So, the idea here is our relationship with the world is that we will be hated, we will be persecuted. So I'll give you like three or four little derivative statements of this. We are not of this world because we have been chosen out of the world. The fact that we are followers of Christ, that he has chosen us and given us a mission, makes us inevitably on the other side of the predominant culture and in our world, those who are in rebellion against God. It doesn't make us going with the flow and we just look a little different. It makes us totally dancing to a different tune. The reason the world hates us is because, he said, this is why the world hates you. I have chosen you out of the world. We are no longer pursuing the things of the world. Remember, we're connected to the vine. We're about God's business in the world. What's that? Bearing fruit. What's that look like? Taking the authentic message and the authentic looking life to a hostile and inauthentic world. He said, this is inevitable. Second thought, there's a cost to discipleship. Jesus is being up front. Remember who he's talking to. He's talking to his disciples. In a few hours, he's going to be crucified. He's going to be raised from the dead. They're going to go live their life, basically living out what he's telling them in these three chapters. And he said, listen, there's a cost to this. I want you to know that up front, is that the world is going to hate you. It is going to persecute you. Now, I know what we're thinking. See, you're sitting here thinking, why does that have to be the case? Because Jesus also taught, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Terry, come on, we don't just do good things for other believers. We do good things for non-believers. We do good things for people that don't even like us very much. We don't return insult for insult. We don't return hatred for hatred. We return love for hatred. Why won't the world love us? Okay, time to grow up. Jesus says, your love, and this is a profound statement. It's not depressing, it's just true. The way we treat people in the world, meaning those who are non-believers, those who are hostile to Christ, is not going to change this. And I want, I want you to think about that because we, let's just talk about us, this, this community of believers here called Crossings. We do a lot of things in this community in the name of Jesus Christ to help people that most, I'm sure, do not believe in Jesus Christ, does not matter to us. And there are times when the community says, oh, aren't you nice? That is not, do not be deceived. Jesus says, that is not going to change it. Why? I mean, there'll be times when people will admire us and they'll say, I think I want to be a part of that kind of community. That's a good thing. That's bearing fruit. But we should never kid ourselves that if we just act nice enough, the world will like us. You know, they didn't elect Jesus mayor. They crucified him, and you're going to be hard-pressed to find Jesus treating anybody badly. It's like, what did you crucify him for? All the people he healed? What did you crucify him for? Telling you the truth? Did he hurt anyone? Did he have a sword? Did he have an army? No. Jesus' point is well taken. We don't do good deeds to get the world to like us. We do good deeds because we're connected to the vine. So don't slip into the trap that if we're just nice enough, they're going to like us. No, at the end of the day, they're not, and that's okay. Some of them will join us. 
And that's the fruit that he called us to go do. But we're going to do that no matter what, because we're connected to the vine. It doesn't matter whether the world approves of us or not. And that's a powerful idea as we go into a time of persecution. Well, why is the world ultimately destined to hate us? He says this. He says, they will treat you this way because of my name. In the New Testament, actually in all the Bible, the idea of a name means because of my authority. People don't, the world does not persecute Christians. Our culture is not hostile to Christians in general because Jesus is your savior. Nobody in this world minds if Jesus is your savior. Nobody in this world minds if you just want to go into your little churches on Sunday morning and pray to this Jesus who's your savior and he's going to take you to heaven. You're nice people. That's great. Now, once you leave that church, you need to toe the line. The world is hostile to Christians, not because Jesus is their savior, because Jesus is our Lord. That's what because of my name means, because of my authority. The world doesn't mind if you want to go off and worship Jesus as crazy as that is, but don't come out here and tell me that you're going to serve him and that you're going to be about his business instead of about the world's business. That's Jesus nails it. He said the problem the world's going to have with you, the problem Roman emperors had with Christians was not the fact that they worshiped this Jesus guy. It's the fact that they said Jesus is Lord. I obey him not you. Boom. And that's still true today. And Jesus is just telling his disciples, he said, look, don't take heart. He's going to be encouraging to them. He just said, I'm just going to tell you the way it's going to be. You're going to love each other. You're going to go do good because you're connected to the vine. But don't kid yourself. In the end, the world will hate you because you obey me, not the powers of this world. Okay? So, the world will hate us. That's what Jesus said. The world will hate us because of our commitment to the lordship of Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a lot about this. Uh, the Cost of Discipleship is one of the books he wrote. But it's a great book, and what he's talking about is specifically this idea, is that there is a cost to following Jesus. He said it's cost worth having because joy, nourishment, the flourishing life, Jesus is the only way, truth, and life. He said, but it's going to cost us something. He said the greatest threat to the church is cheap grace. That's what he wrote in The Cost of Discipleship. And what he meant by that was the greatest threat to the church is thinking, I can have forgiveness without repentance. And what, it, what that translates into, Jesus could be my savior, but I'm going to go obey them. In other words, you can't get the forgiveness without the repentance and said, not my will, but thine be done. I'm following you. I want to be connected to the vine. All those images. You see what he's saying? He said, the cost of discipleship is inevitable because we serve the risen Lord. And the world, many in the world, will come out of the world and join the kingdom, but there will be others. Satan hates the kingdom of God and will do anything to destroy us. And Jesus said, and this, by the way, I imagine Jesus saying this not as, oh no, it's going to be so hard. He's like, hey, just need to let you guys know it's going to be tough, but don't you worry. You stay connected to me, watch what God is going to do. Okay? I love his honesty. But I also love the fact that Jesus is just not concerned about this. He said, this is the way it's going to be, and it's inevitable that it's going to be this way. And he said, but I am the way, the truth, and the life. And this is where joy comes from. He said, you just abide in me, and I will nourish you, and you will see the flourishing life. That's been true throughout history. Where's the Roman emperor now? Dead, gone, miserable. Half of them went crazy. The other half... You know, their families killed them. I mean, it's, it's like a reality TV show on steroids. You know, it's not the full flourishing life. Where were the Christians? Paul, I've learned to be content. Whatever my circumstances, Paul, they're going to cut your head off. I know, I can't wait to depart and be with Christ. It's like, who can deal with this kind of stuff? I mean, that's what the world says. Who can deal with this? That's exactly the point. You can't deal with this because we're connected to the vine. What a beautiful chapter. Okay, this is getting preachy, so I'm going to quit. But basically, this is a beautiful chapter, okay? Reread chapter 15. I want you to see the idea of our connection to Jesus, you know, this loving, this abiding in the vine, our connection to each other, that it's not about how we feel about each other. It's just an expression of our obedience and our love for Christ that we choose to love each other. What a powerful fruit 
What a powerful witness to the world. And he said, and listen, don't kid yourself that that is going to win everybody over. It's okay. I'll deal with that. He said, you just go be faithful, and I'll make sure it all works out. Okay? Now, here's what you should be thinking. I don't think I can do that on my own. I know. You can't. And that's why next week he's going to talk about the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. He comforts them. He challenges them. And in the last little piece that he wants to talk about, he said, now I'm going to tell you the power that I'm going to unleash that you're actually going to be able to do this. So kind of limp along this week till next week. We tell you the power to do it. Okay? I'll see you next week.